This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic, and I'm joined once again by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio. Doug Glanville. Doug, it is great to see you, my friend. Yeah, man. Great to see you. Uh, yeah, a lot a lot went on in baseball this past week. Yeah, so. <laughs> I know. Look, I, I missed you in L.A. I was a little under the weather, actually a lot under the weather, so I couldn't make it. Uh, it was really difficult to not be at the All-Star Game, but Starkville was represented by you, and I'm so glad you were there. But I, I actually have a question, and this just occurred to me. Was that actually your first All-Star game? That was my first All-Star game. I mean, I, I try to go back and think of any other time. but the, I've So, I, you know, think back as a fan. I never went as a fan. I voted all the time. And then I didn't go as a player, and I'd go to concerts during the break or whatever. And then all the years at ESPN and working, I never actually covered the All-Star game. So... In 30 years of professional baseball, I've never been to a Major League Baseball All-Star game until this past week. So I was right. really excited about that. Yeah. It's, it, like, it is really an incredible event. It is so much fun. Uh, it, it killed me not to be there. <laughs> it did. But enough about me. You call the Derby. You call the game on ESPN Radio. So what would you say was your takeaway moment, your takeaway storyline? Uh, was it Juan Soto winning that derby while we're all wondering what team will be playing for in two weeks? How about, was it Julio Rodriguez arriving on the big stage? I mean, Doug, how electric is that guy? Was it Albert Pujols? Was it Clayton Kershaw starting in L.A.? What's that thing you're always going to remember above everything else? <laughs> I know that's the problem <laughs> there because it's all stars. All those things are, you know, kind of normalized in, in this world, <laughs> which it shouldn't be because it's so magical. And I, I don't know. I, I was loving the whole, every aspect. I may mean, think the thing that I gravitated towards the most was watching the true camaraderie, the, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the familyhood. It was just like the connections and how people would mentor each other and talk through generations. You watch Dave Winfield talk to Jose Trevino and you saw, you know, it was, it was just cool. And, and I, I always appreciated the awe that still existed because, you know, these are the best players in the world and they're still up there just like giant kids just thinking about how far Jose Julio Rodriguez hit a ball or, you know, they just never lost that. And that was fun to watch. And yeah, but Julio Rodriguez is hard not to note because I, I just never seen such a rapid fire ability to hit the ball 
over the fence, right? And <laughs> and it was it was like a machine at a certain point. It was just boom, boom, one after the other. And he knew his stroke and he knew the pitch he was looking for. And kudos to the the guy who was throwing batting practice. Um, I forgot his name off my hand, but the Mariners uh, batting practice pitcher. And I mean, man, it was just beautiful to watch. And you know, he just kept hitting him. And so I, I got to cover him uh, calling a Padres Mariners game and he hit a ball on the fourth deck of the metal shop up there. And you kind of knew something was special, but Scott services his manager. And he said that, you know, the, the mix of maturity and joy. And, and that's what I thought was such a great statement because it sums up uh, these young players that are so good, so young, but also having fun and, and teaching all of us how to fun, how to have fun. So that, that was the, the, the big connection. That's what I, kind of pulled from it more than anything is just like watching Dusty Baker talk to Mike Trout and just, you know, just taking pictures everywhere I could. And, uh, and, and that's baseball. It really is a family affair. Yeah. And, you know, look, when you cover baseball, it, (laughs) there's some moments along the way where you feel like you have to defend the sport or it's painful to try to defend the stuff that goes on the whole Work stoppage. I mean, we were just rope a dope and try trying to get people to lay off. Uh, but there are certain events, certain times in the year that just remind you why baseball is great, what we love about it, and the All Star Game is one of those events. It just it just infuses you with with so much joy to be there, and I, it sounds like you got caught up in it. I, I was three thousand miles away. And I felt it. Uh, it was just a, uh, it was a great spectacle. And Julio, man, the star power on that dude—it just blows through the TV screen. And when you're when you're in the ballpark and you're watching him, you can't take your eyes off him. He just got that it thing going. It's it's really fun. Uh, we should let you know out there. Right here. This is not going to be a normal Starkville. Uh, For one thing, it's not Tuesday. Uh, You might have noticed that. Uh, It's been a crazy week, though. Uh, All-Star game at the beginning of the week. Uh, Now I'll be in Cooperstown at the end of the week. It's induction weekend. So in this show, we're going to dispense with most of our usual hoopla. What we're going to do is preview Hall of Fame weekend. And especially, uh, we're going to kick around the legend of David Ortiz as we look forward to him getting inducted into the hall on Sunday. Uh, By the way, coverage on MLB Network starting at 11 a.m. Eastern. Uh, Love watching the Hall of Fame when I'm not there. So glad I will be there. So I'm sure you're wondering, how would we go about pulling off a show like that? Well, how about this? (laughs) We're going to talk with two of Big Poppy's teammates on the 2004 curse-busting Red Sox, Kevin Millar and Bronson Arroyo. Doug, how's that sound to you? Like a good plan? Sounds like a great plan. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, the legacy of David Ortiz. And, I mean, you talk about turning history around. <laughs> this team did it. So, uh, especially with Terry Francona, manager that I got the joy of playing for. So it's, um, it's going to be great to listen to these guys and find out what they have to say about Big Poppy. All right, uh, enough of our chit-chat, Doug, uh, because we're in store for a really fun conversation with two people we love to talk to about pretty much 
anything. They're David Ortiz's former teammates on the Red Sox, Kevin Millar and Bronson Arroyo. Gentlemen, so great to have you visit us in Starkville. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. B's in the studio, and I'm over here fake cowboy. <laughs> well, we, we just, uh, be, before we began recording this, everybody should know out there, we got a look at Millar, what, feeding his longhorns? Is that what was happening there? Yeah, I was feeding the longhorns. I got three total that had two babies, so now we got five, and then we got three horses. So I got eight total animals, and my first animal was from Josh Beckett, which was uh, a little eight-month-old male. And, yeah, now I got now I got problems because the <laughs> corn is going up. <laughs> now, do, we have, uh, do we have any longhorns in Starkville, actually? I don't know if we. You know, it's about that's kind of overdue. You yeah. got to look into that. Let's do it. Uh, I I have a question before we go get our Longhorns though. What happens if you forget to feed the Longhorns? Like if you're at the All Star game or something. Great question. So, they live on the land. They live on the land, but it hasn't rained in Texas, and it's been about 105 degrees. So I just that was just giving them some snacks. So they 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 got hay out there. We give them bales of hay, you know. But most of the time we'll get some rain and, and they just eat the grass. It's like a, they're like lawnmowers. And that's literally what they do is that they just kind of mow the yard. Amazing. <laughs> well, that comes in handy. I, I'd like to hire them every couple of weeks if they, that can be arranged. <laughs> All right. You got it. <laughs> okay. I'll, 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 uh, I'll get that booked after the show. All right, let, let, let's get back to the hall of fame. Uh, we got David Ortiz's induction coming up Sunday. So, there's no better time than now to look back, tell a bunch of stories of the life, the times, and the legacy of Big Poppy. So uh, let's start here. Kevin, I know you just saw David at the All-Star Game. I wouldn't say he seemed nervous. Uh, had the reality of this weekend hit him yet? You know what? I, I, I think he is as good as there is with these kind of situations, Uh and, and, and I think it has hit him, but it hasn't. You know, it, it doesn't hit you, I'm sure, to experience that whole scene. And when you start having to write that speech and he's going to sit down and try to go through all of his bullet points and who you're not going to forget. <laughs> but I know one thing, he's got this aura about him, and Bronson knows this, that uh, he's just got star written over him, all over him. And, and I think he's loved by everybody. Uh, and, and that's a big deal, you know. He's loved... He's in corporate America now. He's loved. He was loved by his teammates. He was loved by the fans, the cities. Uh, there's something special about him. So I, 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 just being around him, there's like this glow. And we did a we did a Marucci uh, little club thing Monday night and went over there and introduced him. And, you know, Albert Pujols showed up. And uh, it, 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 he's just one of those rare talents that you just want to hug him. He's like one big, huge teddy bear. He's everybody's big poppy. So I think it has hit him, but it's just, he, he's just, he's in the moment. Yeah, well, he, he, he's experienced a lot. I don't think he's ever experienced anything quite like what's going to, what's going to go on in Cooperstown this weekend. Uh, so let, let me ask you guys, Bronson, I'll start with you. What do you envision? a big poppy hall of fame speech will be like, I, I cannot wait to hear it. I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be the loudest one ever. That's <laughs> you know, like, like, like Kevin said, he's just a, everybody's big teddy bear. You know, he's got that, that deep full voice and um, you know, he's going to bring some flair to the table. Like, you know, Kevin said he had, 
star written all over him. I had a buddy who ran into him in Naples one time and we were playing golf and he said, I ran into your buddy Ortiz and I went over and I said, hi. And he said, he looked good like I thought he would. His beard was all trimmed perfectly. And he said, but he smelled like money. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's Ortiz, you know? And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming that he's going to stand on the stage and uh, he's never sh he's never shot away from the big stage. But uh, you're only going to get one of two things. You're going to get the David Ortiz that we all know and love. Or you, you might get a 12-year-old schoolboy who's standing in front of the class for the first time reading a book report. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, I, I know one thing. And, Dougie, you play with teammates that are Latin, and they cuss, but they cuss in a loving way. <laughs> I know that there's going to be some cuss words coming out, and sometimes <laughs> he doesn't know he's cussing, you know, and, and the MF and all of that stuff. I think that'll be his biggest, you know, thinking about what to say because, you know, clubhouse lingo is part of what we do, right? And then I think that was my toughest thing doing television was how do you not cuss <laughs> and how do you not, you know, say the words that we've said in that clubhouse for 20 years. So I think the biggest challenge will be David's, you know, just the language aspect of it, trying to, you know, think about, okay, wait a minute, that doesn't, you know, because some of the bad words we all teach all of our teammates, <laughs> you know, they, they learn those quick. And Poppy, uh, Poppy's got a full genre of that. Yeah, well, somebody somebody who had to write one of those speeches, uh, I can tell you that they're very carefully edited by the people at <laughs> the hall. But guys do a go off script. Not me, but I've seen it happen. So we'll can't wait to see it. So uh, I wanted to ask both of you guys, do you remember the first time you met David Ortiz? Like that, that moment where you kind of, you know, connected the dots of like who this man is. I think we got to uh, let you go first. Yeah, I think, Kevin, you know, Kevin probably being on the, the offensive side of the ball and already being a, a more established major league player by the time David came over to the Red Sox locker room, um, he's going to have a better, a better memory of that. You know, I was a young guy. I was 26 years old, I think getting claimed off the waiver wire and, and David was a new face in that locker room as well. And so, you know, I was, I was fighting to try to make that ball club. And I know David was too. I, from my, from what I remember, he was, he was like third or fourth on the list to play first base that year in 2003. Um, there was a lot of guys kind of in front of him. Jeremy Giambi was one of those guys. Uh, and he was coming over from Minnesota and really hadn't totally established himself in the game. And, you know, David, the one thing that I can say about him is that who he was when I met him when I was 26, was that exactly the same guy he is today. And, uh, you know, that's hard to, to find that in guys in the game who've played at a level and put up the type of stats he's put up and had that type of worldwide praise where people know the name Big Poppy everywhere you go. He's, he's always been the same guy. He's always been jovial. He's always been full of energy. He's always been the life of the party. And um, it was always enjoyable to be around him. Well, I, let me ask you this. Uh, right, you guys all arrived with the Red Sox in 2003. Did you or anybody realize what this guy was about to become? I'll tell you this, Jace. You know, we, we showed up in the camp, and like Bronson said, there was like eight non-tenured guys. Theo Epstein's a 28-year-old GM, the youngest GM in the history, so it kind of started this thing that we're at now, right? And, you know, they had Shea Hillenbrand, myself, Billy Miller, David Ortiz, Jeremy Giambi sitting over at first base and third base and DH. So you had five players trying to – you know, get some at-bats with a DH spot, you know, and there's three positions. Uh, so we were all fighting for, you know, for starting, you know, 
time and, and, and game time. And, and David, you know, was the odd man out for a little bit because we had the Jeremy Giambi and the Jason Giambi situation from New York. Uh, Jeremy having an unbelievable on-base percentage and, and, and an eye for the strike zone. So Theo was bringing in guys like Todd Walker and Billy Miller and all these high on-base guys, but really all got non-tender. You know, Todd Walker was at Cincinnati, got non-tender, couldn't play defense. Billy Miller got non-tender from the, from the Cubs, you know, with a kneecap situation. Big Poppy was non-tender from the Twins. I was non-tender from the, you know, the, the, the Marlins had the Japan scene, but we are all of these guys were about 15 to 20 home run guys, 350 on base guys, you know, and just kind of in this mix where we were just there. And that David, you know, watching him hit, he hit. I mean, he was always a good athlete. He's a better athlete than people think, right? It's kind of like LeBron Hernandez. You look at LeBron Hernandez's body and you're like, oh, yeah, he does move. I mean, he was a good athlete. David's the same way. He threw well. He defended well. You get labeled quick. And then all of a sudden, Del McCavich was, you know, the gold glove guy in Minnesota. David was the DH. But David came over and was a good, you know, good, you know, athlete. So we kind of battled. And then all of a sudden, Shea Hillenbrand got traded to Arizona. And I remember this one thing in May. David hit a home run in Anaheim. And David, you know, we won the game. It was a you know game-winning home run. He got on the plane. He said, I want to be traded. Uh, I can't take this anymore. And Jeremy was getting some at-bats. And at this time, you know, bless his soul. But David was the better player. And that was no doubt about it. At that time, I think David might have had five home runs, maybe 18, 20 RBIs going in the middle of May. And he asked for that, you know, trade. But we were kind of talking about it, you know, talking him out of it. And Gray Little, you know, I said, hey, man, David, David's got to play, man. He's got to play. And so that was the time I think Jeremy got released uh, and David got the everyday job. And he ended up with 31 home runs and about 110 RBIs that year. And you saw this slow transition from David Ortiz to Big Poppy. And I think that that game in Anaheim is what established himself as the everyday guy and it was a game winning home run there and Bronson might have remembered that but it was kind of a weird deal because you know you love the guy and we were all kind of fighting for for at bats but you knew that this guy was the DH for the Boston Red Sox and once that kind of all settled through Billy wins a batting tile David DHs I became the first baseman and it was just kind of the team kind of started settled in and we started changing that culture because of him yeah, so so you were playing, David was sitting. I want you to tell the truth. Well, did you know David was we better were, than you? Uh, no, because I'll tell you the truth. This is what we laugh about. You know, we, I played against David Double A with Tory Hunter and New Britain and all this stuff. You know, and he's a good player. And you know, coming off back to back three hundred years from the Florida Marlins in oh one and oh two, you know, I, I David wasn't in my mind. You know, I felt. You know, I was the better hitter. And it's funny because you look at now, I'm not even a, an, an ounce of what David was over how he just <laughs> took off. But at that time, you know, Jay, we were coming in there to fight for jobs. Yeah. You know, and as and as an undrafted player myself, I had to fight no matter where I was. So I was I was in the mood once this Japan deal ended and all this stuff in six weeks of whatever that I show up to spring training Valentine's Day and I was ready. You know, I love competition. You know, it was Derek Lee back in Florida. Now I got Big Poppy here, but he was David Ortiz at that time. 
And my job was to kind of just win a job. And uh, it's just we had three spots for five dudes. And we kind of, you know, we were just doing like a revolving thing. Hill Hill and Brown would play first. Billy played third. Hill and Brown go to third. Billy be on the bench. David play, you know, first. I would DH. And then that's how it was kind of going. But once once he established, I'm ready to, I'm, I'm done sitting. I think that it put pressure on the organization. Like, yeah, we got it. We we have something special here. And it wasn't like that the first six weeks. We were just a bunch of non-tender dudes fighting for our lives. Yeah, and you know, I was just thinking about how um, you know you're you're in this competition and you're learning things about each other under those circumstances. Uh, looking back, is there anything that people don't know about David Ortiz that? you kind of found out in these moments of competition you know, you always hear like Bronson described jovial, all these characteristics, but what about the thing that's yeah. kind of unknown about him? And I, I'll start with you, Bronson, if you want to, or Kev. Oh, it, ahead, you know, on, the, on the flip side of him being jovial, he's also, he's also the guy who you'd never get to see irritated or mad, but if he did snap, get out of his way. <laughs> right? like the guy who's never going to start a fight. But if, you know, the stuff hits the fan, you want David Ortiz on your side because he's just like a Mack truck, you know, that has all this power to unleash that he just never gets out. I mean, even when you shake his hand, you can just feel the power in his handshake, right? It's like a guy who's just a little bit bigger than everybody else. And um, that that's something you didn't get to see very, very often from him, um, even, even in the locker room or, or ever. But, you know, we obviously had some on-field rivalries with the Yankees in 03 and 04. And, um, you know, you got to see a little bit of that from him. He was a better person than player. Dougie. And when I say that, you know, you know, Boston's a market, very small. Uh, it's cozy. And I never saw him say no to an autograph as he was just turning into the star. There was always, he'd come in with nine cell phones and six bottles of cologne <laughs> and stuff. And, 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 and I'm telling you, if the kid asked for an autograph, everything was dropped and he was there. He never strayed from signing a ball or Jersey for buddies buddies that were in town, you know, you know how it is. You got a couple buddies in town and Hey, will you do me a favor get, you know, David Ortiz or Manny's autograph. He was so special that way, you know, never made you feel uncomfortable. So there was this family feel immediately. And, you know, there was no gap, the Latins and the whites and the blacks. And, and, and it didn't matter. Our team was united, but David Ortiz was a big part of that. Pedro Martinez was a big part of that. You know, they had a unique gift to include and there wasn't like this entourage with poppy it was just kind of like he was a dude and that's when you know every spring training and you know Doug, every spring training we go into we're going to try to do the best we can we're going to win a world series but it doesn't always work that way (laughs) and you have out of those 15 years or 12 years or 10 years you play you have like one or two special years with a group of guys that are awesome i mean bronson arroyo was our fifth starter and I'll put him up with anybody in the league, you know, and th- this guy, you know, towed it up every fifth day. So we had those kind of guys and David Ortiz was just a part of this group. You know, he didn't have this, I'm bigger than you. And that was the unique gift that he had. He was a, he was a good person, man. He was always willing just to do whatever it took to make you happy or comfortable. And, you know, and that's what I always respected about him. I told him that there night, you know, I said, you're, People don't know you. They just know you as a home run hitting, spitting on the gloves and, and doing your thing. But he has signed a lot of autographs for kids and touched a lot of people's lives and would do anything for anybody. If you call him tomorrow, you know, he would do it. 
Uh, this is the perfect segue to, to just talk about the legend of Big Poppy. Uh, you guys have done a great job of painting the picture of what he was off the field. Uh, I, I'd love to just go through some of the most memorable moments <laughs> and what you remember. And uh, we could start anywhere, but it, it just feels like October 2004 is the place to start. And before we even got to the Yankee series, the first big magic moment that he had in that postseason was extra inning walk-off homer to end the series, to end that ALDS against the Angels. Either you guys Jared have Washburn. any memories, yeah, any memories of that one or a story behind that that particular home run? I, de- I definitely remember the game because I, I had the win in my back pocket. I, thought, <laughs> I think Vladdy, Vladdy tied the game and, and uh, gave me a no decision. <laughs> but um, that was one of my favorite games of all time that I – that I pitched in and, um, you know, just talking about David on the field, you know, flowering and coming to life and the legend of big poppy coming to, you're talking about, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to put your finger on that because, you know, I was in, I was in triple a in, in the beginning part of Oh three. So I don't remember like the home run in Anaheim. Cause I would have been down babysitting Jeremy Jambi at that time down in triple a <laughs> cause he had got sent down. And, um, you know, I was a guy who was, got stamped by the end of 03 as a, as a, as a major league baseball player. Right. And David really wasn't totally stamped as a, as a frontline major league player until the end of 03. And it's hard to put your finger exactly when that happens. When does the outside public, when does the entire coaching staff, when does the organization as a whole think of David Ortiz as a frontline major league, you know, middle of the lineup guy. And it's, it's not always easy to put your finger on it, but uh, you know, like you said, leading into the playoffs, no one even remembers the fact that he ended that series because of what happened in the Yankees series. <laughs> but I know it was a joy for me to be in the locker room that night and be able to to to, to kind of wipe the sweat off my brow and say this, this series is over and good thing we put it to bed. Yeah, that was a moment. Jason, well, I'll tell you this. <clears throat> People, there's guys that hit good pitching. There's guys that do damage throughout the 162-game schedule but they get to the postseason and they can't hit good pitching. They'll put up magnificent numbers throughout a season. Derek Jeter is one of the greatest in this game has ever seen, right, on that big stage. That's where he made his name. You know, Derek would go through and play great games and dominate through a season, but he never, like, had the 35 and 125, like the Nomar Garcia-Pars or Alex Rodriguez. So Derek played, you know, built a niche in the postseason and winning rings. David Ortiz, when I tell you this, there's no greater RBI guy in big situations in the history of this game. And Manny Ramirez, we, you know, we played together with, and there's nobody better with two outs, tough righty on, and, and Manny would do whatever he had to do, right? But David, it seemed like he would drive in 120, and I'm telling you, 111 of those were big RBIs. They were sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth innings. Uh, the home runs were ginormous when we needed it it wasn't just a bunch of fluff and you know to put up numbers in leagues hard everybody's big leaguers but you know though you understand like there's guys that put up monster numbers because they're just better than people but when a push comes to shove can you hit good pitching you know and i think that's what separated david ortiz was late in the games the jared washburn walk-off home run this confidence that started kind of building like bronson said he still was having to prove to everybody that that he deserved to play. But as this season went on, 
there was no one better. And he started having this confidence that you saw he was a star now. There was no, like, common player. You know, I was a common baseball player. He turned into a star, you know, that season. So about three or four months of just pure swag and dominating against good pitching with big RBIs. And because we were a team now. We were a team that came in there and the radio shows were blasting Theo and who are these guys and, you know, and then you looked at that club in 03 with David in that lineup. I mean, it, it broke a lot of records. And that offense, Billy Miller won the batting title, hit ninth. People forget about that. The 2003 American League batting tile champion, he was our nine-hole hitter. And David Ortiz sat there and drove in, like I said, 110 with 31 home runs and really didn't start starting every day till that middle to the end of May. Yeah. I want to ask something. Jason, can I ask Kevin something here? Because I was curious. I was asked about this the other night, and I don't know the answer because I wasn't in the batting cage with you guys. But is there something that David – you know, they asked why he was so good in big playoff situations. And I felt like where David had exploded from coming from Minnesota and doing what he did in 03 and 04, maybe he had figured out how to shore up the inner half of the plate or some place in his some place in his in his repertoire that he felt like he couldn't cover in the past that he got better at. Was there something you ever had that conversation with him about? Yeah, 100 percent, B. And, you know, David and I, we hit the same group. It was me, Manny and David that hit in the batting practice rounds. And that was on the field. We followed Manny like a little kid, you know, and literally Manny, you know, worked very hard behind the scenes in the cages and a lot of soft toss, a lot of T work. But David Ortiz was the big left handed guy. The book was to pound him in late, uh, you know, hard in. And I would sit on deck a million times and watch Joe Torre and these Yankees try to pound David Ortiz in with the fastball that, like Bronson said, he worked extremely hard to shorten this swing, pull those hands in, almost like Barry Bonds was able to keep a fastball inside fair. And that means pulling your hands in and being quick to that spot to get that barrel squared up on an inside pitch to keep it fair down the line. And he mastered it then. But there was a book, pound him in late, hard in, elevate. It was no more. They kept trying to pound him in, and I would sit there and trot Nixon. I'd be like, bro, we're on deck. Why not let us beat you? They kept throwing inside to David, and it would be a two, three run home run. It seemed like every time. And so, yes, Bronson, that's what he did. He worked hard with Manny. He worked hard in the cages, but that inside pitch, because Manny wasn't a pull hitter. Manny, Manny drove the ball right center. That's where his strength was, like a Miguel Cabrera. Manny couldn't pull home runs. So when David would hit home runs in batting practice, a lot of them were left center, dead center, dead center, big power, right? They'd play games. Well, I couldn't hit the ball dead center. I was pull power. David turned into pull power, but he can go foul pole to foul pole. Yeah, you were talking about how just how he would hit great pitching in those big moments in October. I, sort of looking back on those two series against the Yankees in, in 03 and 04 today. How about this? Starting game four in the in the 2003 ALCS through the end of the 2004 ALCS in the eighth inning or later, he went seven for 15. He had a 500 on base. It was, let me try to remember this now. I think it was three homers, a double and a triple. <laughs> How about that for handling the big moment? Wait, right. Yeah. I don't think it's just, yeah, go ahead. B. I was going to say, I, I don't think people realize what Kevin was talking about earlier too, is that, there is a huge distinction 
between what you do during the regular season, no matter how good of a player you are, and when you play in the big moments. And it's not, it's not only because the pressure is there, you're facing better pitching every night in the playoffs, but it's also because you don't have many opportunities, right? You don't get many at-bats in your career in a World Series game, no matter how many times you've been there, including a guy like David. And for, for you to feel like when he was at the plate with our backs against the wall, up against the greatest reliever of all time, greatest closer of all time, you still felt like we were in the driver's seat with David at the plate. And you couldn't even say that with Manny at the plate. And and to, to have that distinction of a guy that makes you feel cozy, you're watching him from the dugout and you feel like you're on the edge of your seat, but you still feel very confident that he can pull something out in a situation like that is absolutely remarkable. Some of the greatest players who have ever played the game a guy like Clayton Kershaw, right, has gotten a little bit of flack for not performing up to those same regular season standards as he does in a playoff game at times. Or a guy like Albert Pujols, you know, and it is hard to do this on that stage for anybody. And he did it multiple years. It's absolutely remar remarkable. Yeah, let me point out that Glanville had a pinch triple. <laughs> well, you guys were busy playing uh, seven-hour games against the Yankees. Glanville had a pinch, pinch triple against the fish. <laughs> Doug, yeah, you want to tell them all about it? Comes up about seven times well, a year. Hey, well, it was off a sinker. It was off a sinker, which normally I hit off my shin or hit it into the dirt or missed it completely. So uh, that was a you moment. At least beat him out though. <laughs> yeah. Worst case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, well, and, and you talk about these, these big moments. Do you, do you recall any of the reflections he had after those moments? Like what kind of conversations came uh, in those moments after the celebration, the, the discussion, what, what did he talk about? How did he frame it? He started, he started knowing that he was the best. I mean, he started knowing and he started becoming a very smart hitter. David's always been a smart hitter. He's a guest, guest hitter. You know, Manny was a, a see the ball, uh, you know, hit the ball guy, you know, and we always used to laugh because we'd beat teams up and, you know, you'd hear, have all the stuff that we had the signs and, uh, you know, all of this, this silly nonsense. And bottom line was, is that we did work, you know, and that's when we'd go underneath and iPads and, and, you know, guys were, you know, always watching the starters, as you knew, Dougie. Like the last start that the starter would have, it run from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock. You have the starter on TV. But David and Manny were watching middle relief guys. They were watching similar 3-4 hitters, middle lineup guys, uh, Sheffield, Posada, uh, against these pitchers. And I'll tell you one quick story. We were playing in Cleveland facing CC Sabathia. And Sabathia, you know, he's 95, 96, hard slider. And – you know, I go downstairs and, you know, David and Manny are watching middle relief guys and they're watching the Yankees face the Cleveland Indians. And it was Baez was in that bullpen and, you know, whoever the, the hard right handers were in there and lefty. But I go, what are you guys doing? It's a very simple thing. We know what CeCe Sabathia has. He's fastball slider. He's coming in hard and that's what he does. He's power. But late in the game when he gets taken out, they would watch guys who they're going to be facing. That was a head, that, that was head and shoulders above, you know, different things because I was just watching the starter, you know, I was like, Oh, I got a starter is Mike Museums on the mound. We got a fastball curveball slider, cutter, you know? And so you're just kind of stressed out on the starter. These guys, they put that in their back pocket. They know what the starter had, but they were ready for the seventh, the eighth and the ninth innings. And that's what was amazing about these two guys, Manny and David and David, I'll tell you right now, turned into a very big student of the game and understood where pitchers were trying to get him out on. So he would sit, 
he would sit on a breaking ball or he would sit on that hard cheese in late in game. But he did serious damage because of the knowledge and never strayed away from a plan. Because hitting, you got to have a plan. It, you know, people always ask, how do you hit a fastball? How do you hit a curveball? How do you get – you have to have a plan. Sometimes that plan doesn't work, but there is a plan when you're walking to the plate. You understand if you're facing Jamie Moyer, you're trying to get the ball up, get him on the plate, Tom Glavin. And then you also understand if you're facing Kyle Farnsworth coming in late in the game that he's throwing 100 miles an hour. You better get that head out. So there's always a plan. David was a big student of the game to kind of put that all into the repertoire. Let let me ask you guys about two of the most amazing back-to-back games in postseason history. (laughs) You know which ones, right? These are games four and five of that ALCS in 2004. Uh, Yankees up three games to none. Sorry for bringing that up. Then comes game four. I know everybody talks about the Dave Roberts steal off Mariano. I I guess I should really say they talk about the Kevin Millar walk (laughs) that led to the Dave Roberts steal. (laughs) But that just leads to the tying run in the ninth. So that game wasn't over. It's the the walk-off bomb from David Ortiz in the 12th inning at 1.22 in the freaking morning that ended that game. What do you two guys recall about that moment and how it changed that series? I, You know, for, for me, I, re- I remember, I remember even down 3-0. I mean, I started game three and got, and got beat. I'd been, I hadn't lost a game in a long time. Yeah. I hadn't lost any games to the Yankees up to that point. And, um, you know, getting beat 19-8 the night before, you know, we were pretty down in the dumps, but it was a very special locker room. And Kevin was, probably the, the biggest power mover inside that locker room of keeping optimism up. Right. And, and almost sarcastically being like, you know, um, you know, I got fishing plans, boys. We need to make sure we lose tonight. So, so, so we can get out of here. Right. And, and um, you know, some of that stuff was always going on. I, I do remember before that game though, there was this thing going around in the locker room that, that uh, in the newspaper, they had printed that Gary Sheffield had said that those guys are a bunch of idiots, you know, something like that. And it was something that was supposed to be derogatory. And I don't know if it was even true or not, but somebody had printed that and they put them up all over the locker room. And, and I remember Kevin and a couple of guys still having that, you know, kind of the swag. It was like, you know, we're not, we're not out of this thing yet. And and in the back of everyone's mind, or at least in my mind, I was a young guy, you know, I was, I had, I had never been even near a playoff game really um, until I got to Boston. And and so, you know, you're down 3-0. It's never been done before. You're thinking, we could be cooked here, but we're going to give them our best shot. And so for me, you know, David hitting that home run that night in game four and just giving us a little bit of breathing room. It felt like you just needed – that this team was so good that you just needed a little gap to, to, to get a, a breath and maybe we could come back in this thing. And, you know, he did that for us. And, that, and that's where – you started feeling like the team is riding this guy's back, right? He does that in game four, comes back, and we're in the same situation in game five, and and things go down very similar. Well, Kevin, you were the guy who yeah, said, don't up. let the Red Sox win tonight. <laughs> well, you won that yeah. night. Well, the Shaughnessy report when he called us frauds, you know, I was using the restroom that day going into game four. We, we were obviously down three games and none. And that morning, that's back when we used to read the sports pages. Now everybody's got phones, but – the Boston Globe, he, he said, uh, you know, it's a pack of frauds. And I remember that 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 kind of got me. So when I got to the clubhouse that day, you know, Dan Shaughnessy walked in and, you know, I remember just started yelling. I'm like, hey, nice hair, Dan. Your hair sucks. <laughs> and uh, and I started kind of, you know, ragging on him a little bit. And, you know, it started a little bit of like, OK. And then he came over and I'm like, frauds? I go, Pedro Martinez, you know, Martinez a fraud. 
Is Trot Nixon a fraud? Is Jason Veritek a fraud? Is Big Poppy a fraud? They might be better than us, but you challenged our integrity when you're saying fraud. That's a big word. And at that point, you know, Poppy kind of, yeah, 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 whatever, Malasha, yeah, that's right. And he kind of started this little this little toughness, like, yeah. And that was the truth. And then I, after that, Shaughnessy came up to me, why are you so hard on me? And as we went out to for batting practice, and that's when it all happened with the boomstick was over our head. But I was like, don't let us win tonight. I don't know how we're going to do it. We had Derek Lowe, and that matchup didn't look good. But don't let us win tonight because we do. We got Pedro game five, Schilling game six, and anything happened game seven. But that game four, we're down, you know, in the ninth. You got Mariano trotting in. I walk. David Steele second. Roberts. Well, Billy Miller got the base hit to tie it up. So that's the big knock to get the run home. Once again, Billy ball game, base it up the middle. Now, now we go. You saw this little energy kind of go. And then obviously Paul Quantrill does the front door sinker. Poppy wins it and walks his mob. The next night, like Bronson said, we are in the same exact situation. I actually walked again. And we had the same situation go. It was magnified in game four, but you look at game five, David Zabata Loiza was absolutely tremendous. It was like a 12-pitch at bat, battled to death, cutters and fastballs and sinkers and cutters. He ends up getting the base at the center field, fist it. Now we win. We walk off back-to-back nights. Big Poppy does it both. And you saw this, and when I tell you the truth, there was no pressure on us. There was no pressure on us. It The momentum just swung to our clubhouse, and the Yankees were scared now, and they understood even though we were going into New York, there was something going on now because they were supposed to kind of just go ahead and sweep us. It's never happened, this and that. And we had this swag kind of keep going like, yeah. And it all started from one Sheffield Collins idiots, if that was the case. But the main thing for me was the Dan Chauncey interview calling us a pack of frauds. And I think that, that we rallied around that. And the boxes became on top of the locker instead of pulling the boxes down the pack <laughs> for the offseason. We know those years, but we weren't doing that. Now it was let's go to game six and let's go. And then game seven, we had a chance to shock the world. And rarely do you get to leave your hotel room saying, if we win tonight, we could shock this world. And that's basically how it all kind of came. And once we got to game seven, it was over. Yeah, well, I, I, I just want to think about what, happened in those 24 hours because the first walk-off hit is at 1 22 a.m the second one was somewhere like around 11 right that was theoretically that was a day game it just it, it ended at almost midnight but two walk-off hits in the same day in october I, you guys might know this stat but I'll ask you, how many other players have ever had two walk-off hits in the same postseason series? That's none. And David Ortiz had two on one day. And I, to me, it felt like if, there was, if you're going to look at 24 hours when David Ortiz became that guy, was it those 24 hours for you? Oh, I, I I think it definitely was. You know, the we we had already we had already been through the Pedro. You know, who, who's your daddy with Pedro, <laughs> and that is what started the who, who's your poppy thing, right? And <laughs> in those twenty four hours, David Ortiz turned into Big Poppy, and people on the other side of the globe in Japan and in China knew who this man was, and they still do to this day. And that's hard to do for an American, you know, major league baseball player. And um, he he. 
he, he, he David Ortiz turned into the big poppy on that night, which was, which what's so amazing about it too. And Kevin might have a different thing. My my locker was a little further away from from David, but he was kind of in the center. He was the guy who controlled the music in the locker room, and um, and it was always like a little bit of a party down at the at the end of his locker. <laughs> and but I never saw David overly celebrate these situations. He celebrated these situations as like. Hey, we just won this game as if he was a teammate who was on the bench and you never saw him really come out of that and, and be like, look what I did, guys. It was always like the team just won. And even the years that proceeded after that, you never saw David feel like he was taking on um, all this responsibility that, that, that he was laid upon. You know, he went out there and got the job done and walked back in the locker room celebrating as if he was just a guy who watched it. I mean, Kevin might have a different take on that, but I never saw him really gloat. Like, look what I just did. Yeah, he just did the, the, the confidence. The confidence was another level. You know, he was now officially a star. Uh, you know, back then, as we know, that rivalry, there was nothing better in sports. Uh, it's changed over the years, obviously. You know, when guys started playing for the Yankees and Red Sox and all that stuff with the Johnny Damon and Jacoby Ellsbury situation. But then... There is no rivalry like this. And when you've dominated that team like David has, and then obviously on that stage in front of the world, because everybody watched that. That was like Super Bowl. Those games were like Super Bowl, which is hard to do in baseball. But they were like events when the Yankees and Red Sox met. That's when it, that's when it you just saw it. That's when he started going that next level. He was no longer just another dude on that team. He was the best player on that team. And, and Bronson, I was just curious, like, you know, you always, as a pitcher, I'm sure you always think about, well, how would I pitch this guy? Because first of all, you might be playing against him in the next year. I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, did you have that thought early? And then how did it change after these playoff moments? Did you have a different strategy going in than after these postseason games? I never was a guy who thought about my own teammates really on how to beat them too, too much. But, you know, you saw David play, you know, day after day and, and how good he was. You know, I, I always saw him as a guy, like Kevin said, was if you could beat him, maybe you'd be on the inner half. It felt like he covered the plate really well. And he felt like his pop to left center was so great um, that at some point you were going to have to try to get on, on the inner half or maybe try to get him to chase a breaking ball down in the dirt. But, you know, when I look at David and I watch – the comfortable bats he had against, you know, guys that were much better than me. I, I, I know I would have had my hands full with him, you know, left-handed hitters give, gave me trouble all the time anyway. And, um, you know, he just, he never seemed outmatched with anybody, you know, there's only a handful of guys you can watch, you know, go up against a Max Scherzer or a Justin Verlander in their prime or a Pedro Martinez and give you a good quality at bat. I saw that in Cincinnati a lot with a guy like Raldis Chapman. When he would come in the game, there was only like three guys in the game that could give him a quality of bat that didn't look overmatched. And David never looked overmatched, no matter how big the stage or how good the pitcher was. And so for, for myself, I probably would have tried to nibble down on the way, see if I could get a ground ball. I, he didn't have the best wheels in the world. Maybe I could, you know, get him the ground one out. But, um, but I would have had a tough time getting David out on a consistent basis, that's for sure. You know, here's the impression I always had from watching David and being around him. It, it felt like he was a character in a movie. You know, it's like people in real life, they don't have that presence that he always had. Uh, they don't get that big hit in the bo big moment as often as he always did, or it seemed like he always did. did. Did you guys ever feel even remotely that way about him? 
No, you know what he had? Like I said, he, he was he, – there was two guys on our team that were different, Manny and David, and when they walked in, they were stars. You know, there's a lot of great players in the big leagues that you play with, but not everybody has that feeling. When they walk in a room, it was like, yeah, he's a star. And, you know, Gabe Kapler went to the Dodgers. I remember him, you know, Matt Kemp. He called me and he said, man, I, you know, I said, how's Matt Kemp over there? And he's like, he's a lot like David and Manny. He's a star. When he walks in the room, it's like this good looking, you know, he's an MVP candidate. And so David is, is had that feeling when he walked in and now when he started going places and we, cause one thing about our team, we hung, we were together. We were at the bars, we were eating dinners. We had 17, 20 deep and the other four or five, eight guys that weren't there their family might've been in, but we were tight and David, it started becoming different. Like it was a, you know, there was a following. It was like walking around Rocky Balboa. He was now big poppy. He was now the city of Boston. And I think that's when it started changing because the dominance against the New York Yankees, when you dominate against the New York Yankees in that city, and now you start winning championships and you could name them all. I mean, the 041 we're talking about, the 13 championship beard brothers, you know, the Boston bombing. I mean, go look at the numbers that he did. I mean, he hit 500. I mean, it, it, they, they are not even in that, in the vicinity without David Ortiz, you know? So he now, it, it was just a different, it was a different following. You know, when we got off the bus, there were hundreds of people around and his big poppy they're looking for. You know, after David got elected to the hall in January, I remember that he actually thanked the Yankees and uh, Listening to him, you know, it felt like he just loved playing in those games, uh, that they brought out some element of greatness in him. Um, in some ways, it, it felt like he really did define his career and define his legacy against that team. And as you look back on it, how epic were those games? And is there a way to describe David in that environment? It's just the East Coast. And I say that. I, I don't know the difference. I don't know if it's because we fall asleep and Mike Trout's fourth at bat. But, you know, Mike Trout could dominate the the Seattle Mariners and hit, you know, 20 home runs, you know, in a year against them. But there's a different rivalry than the West and the East. The East, David Ortiz thrived on the big stage. And we always say, you know, the pressures of, like, Dougie playing in Philadelphia or playing in Florida. You know, there's four reporters in Florida. Then you go to Boston, there's 60, and they're trying to write a story on one game, but ultimately we had a star on our team in the making, and, and we got a chance to see it from day one, you know, from 03 all the way through now, and it's been such an awesome, you know, an awesome ride just to know that, you know, Bronson and I were in the beginning stages in that clubhouse for three years with David, and then obviously he just kind of took off. I went to Baltimore and he was driving at 150 RBIs at 50 homers. And I remember like, bro, what the hell happened? You and I were fighting for a position in 03 in spring training. And now, and now you're hitting 50 and 150. I'm over here trying to hit 250. What the hell happened? But it, it, it happened. You know, he just turned into a star. And the confidence, call it whatever you want. Manny Ramirez, I mean, J.D. Martinez could lean on Miguel Cabrera for the Detroit lessons. But guys just – it, like a switch clicks, you know, uh, and, and flips. And David flipped that switch quick in 03. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's also hard to say that anybody, you know, on any team could walk into Yankee Stadium and have that lineup as deep as it was with guys like Bernie Williams 
you know, and Matsui hitting deep in that lineup, Posada, you know, dropping 20, 25 homers, hitting down in the seven and eight hole like Billy Miller. And to have those guys walk over to a batting cage during batting practice and watch David Ortiz in awe, right? To, 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 yeah. to know that David Ortiz was the type of guy that, you know, Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter wanted to come over and make sure they said hi to, right? That doesn't happen every day, especially in Yankee Stadium. And when you started seeing some of those things, you realize that David was playing on a level that everyone had to respect because they knew that he was probably the better man. Uh, well, I always think of, uh, you talk about star power. Is there any moment you recall, whether it's uh, out in public that you were with him and, and kind of got overwhelmed by, you know, the true star power, whether it's meeting, you know, someone in Hollywood or, or how he responded to fans once he kind of had the big poppy uh, logo going? I, I we probably we, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, mean, I was just going to say, when we clinched in 03, it was, I think we were playing the Orioles at home, and we clinched the wild card. We were fighting all the way to the end. And I remember when we clinched, we all jogged down the down the road, Yaki Way, across the street, full uni, full team, <laughs> spikes, the whole shebang. And literally, like a Rocky movie, think about doing it this day and age with social media, but we left. We took off after we celebrated, went straight down the Yaki Way to a bar, and I remember it was like this entire following that we jumped in this bar and we're serving drinks and you, we had to close the doors. Be, this wasn't because me, Bronson and Derek Lowe were just, it was, but big poppy was here. And it was like this, it was like this God, you know, in Boston. And that's what they do. The fans put you on this pedestal. I always say your struggles, it's a miserable thing, but when you're doing well, you're like Aerosmith. And that, that's when, that's when the rock star, you know, was, was, was formed and it was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're different now, but Poppy was on this team. You remove him from that, that team. We were still a good ball club, but it's like, where's the personality? You know, we, we were all chirping in here and there, but David was the, 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 the swag and the personality and the diamonds. He started these chains. You I mean, now everybody's got these, these, these chains. We used to make fun of him. I used to put on his all diamond necklace in Tampa and he had like this, bicycle chain and gold and he had the earrings and it was like it was different then you know it was like he was the first guy to kind of really go bling when bling wasn't even in yet you know and it was like then he started following with you know the younger latin guys and everybody wanted to be like big poppy and i think that's what was the cool thing is you started seeing this whole transition of the big poppy and it didn't matter what it was man he could show up in a ferrari with poppy on the front you know, and it was like, oh, yeah, that's Big Poppy, where if Bronson or I or somebody drove a Ferrari with Millar on the front, it'd be like, ah, what a tool, <laughs> not Big Poppy. It was Big Poppy. Uh, and Bronson, I know you, 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 were, you were saying something. Oh, I was just going to say that I, I, I didn't get to hang with David too much in the nightlife. I remember one, one of my, my favorite nights of all time, though, we were in Kansas City, and um, it was this place was just jam-packed, and uh, – I just wanted to get away. So I just like went downstairs and I just ended up in this little room and it was Pedro, Poppy and Manny were in there just all decked from head to toe in white, white <laughs> on white. And they were just dancing salsa. There was only like 20 people in the place. And it was just a, a cool vibe. It was like, I just walked into a Hollywood party. It was like, you know, I didn't think these guys got out of the house hardly ever, man. And I come downstairs and they got like this beautiful party going on with only about 20 people around. It was awesome. <laughs> Wow, what a vision. Uh, Kevin, you said something that I, I think got you in trouble. Like you, you said 
after David got elected, David Ortiz is the greatest Red Sox of all time. <laughs> and I, I am so sure that you got an earful about Ted Williams after you said that. I'm just curious, like, what happened after you said what you said? And do you still think David Ortiz is the greatest Red Sox ever, including Ted? I do. Uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to see Ted Williams, and obviously, what a what a tremendous player hitter the whole shebang. But I, I had a chance to play with David Ortiz. So when you have a chance to see a guy play 162 games a year, day in and day out, and you know, listen, you, you fast forward. The athletes are stronger, bigger, faster. Guys throw harder. The specialty guys come out of the bullpen. You know, it's a different game. And not taking anything away from the guys back in the day. But like I said, I love baseball. I'm a student of the game, but there is nobody better than David Ortiz. And, and I mean that because of all of the rings, he was a factor in every one of them. And bringing championships to Boston wasn't easy. You know, 86 years is a long time, and that's all we heard, and that's all the negative vibes and how the Red Sox going to lose and the Bill Buckner play. And you're the first baseman for, Bill, you know, for the Red Sox and the signs that said Millar equals Buckner. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on leading up to these World Series. Uh, it wasn't easy. And we were trying to change a culture uh, as a unit, you know, and Bronson Arroyo and Tim Wakefield and Derek Lowe and Pedro and Schilling and then Big Poppy. You know, this was a remarkable, remarkable talent. And I still stand by those words that he's the greatest Red Sox to ever play. I've never I've never thought about that. But you, you realize that if you take David Ortiz off of that club, there's a chance that the curse is still there, that they've never won one. Wow. That's... Yeah, you think about that. If he stayed in Minnesota, I mean, who knows? I mean, but he was a 80% dude in every one of the World Series. I mean, 04, 07, 013. I mean, you could sit there and just – that's and, and it's Derek Jeter the same way. He made his name on that stage. He, he was the guy every time the Yankees towed it up for, for postseason. David was that guy, you know, uh, every time he towed it up for the Red Sox. You know, that really is a, an incredible way to look at it. I, like, I'm staying out of this. S send your send your critiques to Kevin Millar, care of MLB Network. Leave me, leave me and Glanville out of this one. But it really is true. When you start thinking about the what-ifs, what if David Ortiz never shows up in Boston? Or what if he goes to Theo and says, you got to get me out of here, trade me, dude. And they do. Like, is there st are we still talking about this curse? Oh, my God. It's gonna what keep if David nights. Roberts was out at second? I mean, that throw was on the money. He was just in there. What if he's thrown out there and we lose that game? You know? Yeah. I, I, there's so many what-ifs, right? But what if Millar didn't walk? <laughs> yeah, what if I pop up this short? I mean, you know, it is uh, it is remarkable, but but given the opportunity, there was nobody better in any big situation, in any big moment. And the Joaquin Benoit grand slam that he hit against oh. the Tigers when Hunter went over the wall, he looked at the boys in the dugout and said, I'm sitting first pitch changeup. And Joaquin Benoit had a great changeup, but he also threw 95. I didn't have that in me. I couldn't go up there and sit soft oh oh and then hover <laughs> and he did it it's like that's big poppy you can't make that stuff up yeah that's why he's giving that speech this weekend it's about those moments right. it really is uh you know usually on this show people ask us trivia questions uh 
we thought this week we might have some fun and turn the tables and ask you guys a little trivia. They're easy. You'll get them. You up for this? <laughs> I don't know. If Malar doesn't beat me, something's wrong. I don't okay. watch much no. TV these days. All right. Here, all right. First question, I guarantee you, Bronson, you will get this. Of all the players on the 2004 Red Sox, who was the last man standing? Who was the last to retire? Oh, no doubt. That was that was me. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> I got that one. I think it was me, you listen, and David were probably the last three. And then me and it was me and David at the end, right? Yeah, David David made it to twenty sixteen. You were still going in twenty seventeen, so you, you can stump your friends with that one on a bar stool sometime. There it is. I'm hoping he's gotta give he's gotta give me a shout out now in the speech. That's right. All right. <laughs> well, I'll be hanging on the edge of my seat. All right, one more. Since two thousand. Only three players have hit at least 150 home runs for the Red Sox. David's obviously one of them. Can you name the other two? You've heard of them. <laughs> what do you think, boys? You got, got Manny Ramirez, I would guess. Yeah, Manny's uh, one. So who is the third? 150 since 01? 150 since 2000. Since 2000. Was Mo Vaughn the other one? Uh, Mo Vaughn did not even get to a hundred. So, uh, oh, actually he's, he hey. came along too soon, right? He was in the nineties. This is since Veritech? Jason Veritech is correct. <laughs> wow. Doug, they went two for two, I think, right? They're so much better at this than us. <laughs> yeah. We have to bring them on every week. <laughs> Help us out. <laughs> all, right, all right. One last thing. If you guys were going to explain David Ortiz to someone who didn't know anything about him how would you explain the phenomenon the essence of big poppy i'd say um if you didn't know who david ortiz was i'd say take shaquille o'neal and mix him with little wayne <laughs> put him in the corner of the club he's the coolest guy in the club and everybody wants to come over and shake his hand and say hi that's david ortiz very good kevin yeah. That is spot on. You know, people don't realize he was a heck of a basketball player in Dominican. He's got some skills. He's a better athlete than he looks. Uh, I know sometimes he thinks he's a rapper. You know, I used to make fun of him. I was a big, big pimp. <laughs> You're not a rapper, dog. You're not a rapper. He come in just with all, like I said, his bling. But honest to God, there was nobody like him. The kindness, the loyalty, uh, the brotherhood. Uh, there, there's no ego, you know, it's a fun ego, but I, I would say to everybody that, you know, we only see him in the batter's box and you see him compete and do his thing. But once he showers up, man, this guy is, uh, he's just, he is one of the rarest, sweetest, uh, and great teammates you ever meet. Very good. So will either of you guys be in Cooperstown on Sunday? I can't make it, brother. I got too many kids now. We got we got some serious <laughs> baseball things going on. <laughs> Unfortunately, too many kids. Like last week, <laughs> too many kids. Too many Longhorns. <laughs> too many Longhorns. That's, many, that's right. I got no help out here. It's getting dark now. The horse is probably going. What the hell? You locked me in here. <laughs> oh, I, I, just curious. Just one thought I had is: Are there any players today that remind you of him? Oh, great question, Dougie. Today. You know, for me, for me, while you're thinking about it, Kev, for me, it's really hard to compare anybody that you've just seen on TV 
uh, and you didn't know them personally inside the locker room to compare them with the David Ortiz. And that's all. now Kevin's been around guys now because he's still doing TV and he's in locker rooms from time to time and on the field. But, you know, David was a guy that exactly what you saw on the TV was exactly who he was in real life. And that doesn't happen all the time in sports, right? Sometimes there's a facade you put on in the field and then behind closed doors, you're a totally different yeah. guy. David was authentic across the board. And so without knowing guys inside those locker rooms, it's very, very hard to put my finger on that. Yeah, there's nobody like him. They're really, uh, you know, because he's got it all. He's got the glitz, the glamour, the numbers, the accolades, the silver sluggers, the all-star games. But but he's one of those those rare athletes that are loved by everybody, even the opposing team. And that's rare because when you're competing at this high level, you know, he's a guy that just had that knack that was loved by everybody, you know. And so, you know, I, I was thinking about that. And it's a great question, Doug, just to kind of like who is like David now. But there's really not anybody because the ones I mean, Mike Trout. Is, is loved by everybody. He's a wonderful person. He he does things on the field that you just can't teach, you know? I mean, he would be that star, but he's on the West Coast. It's like, I don't even think he gets his love. And Aaron Judge right now is turning into that guy. I think that's loved by everybody who's a star, who does it with a smile, who doesn't do it with this tough guy, you know, this fake tough guy stuff that some of the guys try to be. But I, I would probably go with Aaron Judge right now is there anybody like Poppy? He's got that six foot seven, two hundred eighty-five pound frame that you kind of gravitate to when he's around because the All-Star Game, you know, people they're staring at Aaron Judge, you know, and there's a lot of great players there, but you can see everybody just kind of going, "Whoa, there's big fella, number nine-nine. Yeah, yeah, he's he's larger than life, but David Ortiz has three rings, and um, you ain't lying. Everybody he's in Boston will tell you, do. Aaron Judge has none, right? Not yet. So stay tuned. So far. And I'll leave you with this, guys. Right. You know, I, I caught his first at bat. I was a left fielder. His first at bat, when, when he was called up with Minnesota, he flew out to left, and I was in Chicago. So uh, I, I will always go down saying, Poppy, I got you the first at bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff right there, Dougie. Yeah. What, what what connects Doug Glanville and David Ortiz? There you go. A put out. He got his first out. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you two guys will be watching on Sunday. Uh, that coverage starts 11 a.m. Eastern on MLB Network. Yeah. It's a great group. Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, Buck O'Neill, Minnie Minoso, Gil Hodges. Fantastic group. But it'll be David Ortiz's show and really can't wait for it. You, you guys are the best. I can't tell you how much we appreciated hearing your epic tales of Big Poppy in all those years. So all the best. Look forward to seeing you down the road. I appreciate you, boys. That was fun. Yeah, thanks, guys, man. So much fun. Thanks for taking the time, man. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic just like this all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to read any of the fantastic writing in The Athletic, we can tell you how. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, guess what? You can subscribe for just $1 a month for the next six months. Also remember, you can be part of this podcast. 
Every show, although not this week, we pick the most fun listener trivia question, and that listener gets to join us right here and prove, once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you just need to submit a question. You can do that via email at starkville@theathletic.com, or here comes the fun part. You can hit us up with the questions on Twitter. How would someone find Doug Glanville to send that Doug Glanville a trivia question. Yeah, social media, you, you try to be everywhere and then you end up nowhere, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, my Twitter handle is at Doug Glanville, pretty boring, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Very well spelled. I am at Jason S-T, that's J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember to hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville Q-S. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Kevin Millar and Bronson Arroyo for joining us. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll be back next week on Starkville. Starkville.